Good morning. I'm going to get my stuff here. Having kids comes with a steep learning curve. No matter how many books you read, how many videos you watch, how many people's advice you heed, it is like traveling to an alien planet. Nothing is more fun to me than seeing a couple that are about to have their first kid and them tell me all their plans. And I'm just like, that is so awesome. But through blood, sweat, and tears, you finally begin to understand feeding schedules. You start to understand how to get them to sleep. You begin to understand how to discipline them. And you have figured it all out. And then what happens? Number two comes along. And this kid is an entirely different species. And none of your techniques and tested uh, 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 things apply to them. You have to start all over again. You're like, what? I don't get credit for the first one? But as your kids get older, you begin to see the creativity of God who divinely designed each one of them. And you begin to see that each one of your kids brings something special to the world, and the world would be missing something if it didn't have them. And then you begin to look at the people around the table, people who don't see through the same lens as you, who are not motivated by the same things as you, who don't sin in the ways that you do. And you can either leave the table, or you can begin to see that, you know, the meal just wouldn't be the same without them. We need divine diversity. And that's why we're in a series this summer called Table Manners. What we're doing is asking this question, how can we find a way to stay together and to love each other deeply when it gets hard? And navigating this question requires more than just grace with each other. Well, I'll just be kind. Well, I'll just give more grace. Well, I'll just be more patient. No, no, no. Navigating this requires us to seek to truly understand one another. One of the greatest ways that we can love one another is to understand one another. A few years ago, I came across something that St. Augustine said that has really shaped my life. This is a Latin translation of what he said. He said this, novum me, novum te. What he's saying here is he was speaking of God and he was saying basically this, to know myself, I must know you. And to know you, I must know myself. Augustine believed that the more that, uh, that he learned about how God created him, the more he would understand God. If, if the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, then when we begin to dig into that and go, well, how did God uniquely make me? It helps me understand who he is. And the more that I understand about God, vice versa, the more I begin to understand about me and my role in this world. Now, we can apply this truth not just to our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other. The more that we understand each other, our motives, our fears, our flaws, the more that we can value and love each other. I would even say this, understanding ourselves is a necessary part of spiritual transformation. Doing the hard work to understand how God has wired you is a necessary part of spiritual formation because life is not a one-size-fits-all. And at the same time, understanding others is necessary if we're going to learn to love them. So this summer what we're doing is we have taken nine historical figures whose lives are recorded for us in the Word of God and we're seeking to know them so that we can know ourselves. And while our primary text is the Word of God, there's something that a bunch of our staff have been working with, this tool to help people know themselves called the Enneagram. Now, you don't need to know the Enneagram or anything about that, but if you are aware of that, it just adds another layer to this 
of what God wants to teach you. Now, we've already looked at Peter. We did that week one. We did uh, Paul over here. Put him up here so you can see him. Paul likes to sit a little higher than everyone else, so we'll put him right there. We've already done Peter. We've already done Paul. Um, And today we're going to go back in time about 1,700 years before the birth of Christ. Now, what's interesting as this table fills up this summer is a lot of these people never interacted with each other. They lived in different places in different times. But for the next three weeks, we're going to see three family members, a mother, her son, and her grandson, Rebecca, her son, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph. And it'll just add another dynamic now, because now we're not just seeing random people being at the table together, we're actually seeing a family. And today what I wanted to do is I wanted to see how their divine design and even some of their fatal flaws begin to interact with each other. And we're going to start today actually with the end result of this family, a grandson named Joseph, whose life doesn't just have implications for the nation of Israel, but also ultimately his life will have implications for the appearance of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take Joseph, and for reasons that I hope will become clear, I think Joseph would like to sit right up here at the head of the table so he can see everybody and where they're seated. Where people sit at tables is very important to guys like Joseph. Now to understand Joseph, you have to start with his father, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons with four different women. There's just a lot of dysfunction and drama right there. These 12 sons, of course, were all different from each other, but there was something about Joseph that stood out. Dad loved him best. You know how if you grew up in a family with siblings, there was always one sibling that the other siblings were like, yeah, dad loves him best. And the mom and dad would deny it. No, we don't. And then you're like, but you really do. But in this case, literally, it was true. This wasn't just good old sibling rivalry. Dad did love Joseph best, and his brothers hated him for it. Imagine like a Thor and a Loki-type relationship, except you have ten Lokis and one Thor. Now, why were they so at odds with each other? Well, in Genesis 37, look what Moses records. He says this, now Israel, I put in Jacob because that's his name. We'll find out that in a few weeks. Jacob loved Joseph more than any other other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, they, what? They hated him. They couldn't even speak peaceably to him. Joseph was the favorite son. He was the son of his old age. That line, it's almost like that, that Jacob had 10 sons who didn't even count until Joseph came along. Joseph and his younger brother Benjamin were the only two children born to Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's true love. And so, if you remember, we'll find out this out, but Jacob was actually tricked into marrying the mother of most of his other kids, and so there's resentment already there. Jacob also made a decision that he would use 17-year-old Joseph to spy on his other brothers all the time. You go out and find out what they're doing. What are they up to? Any parents ever done that with your kids? You always have one kid who's the informant? and you know you can count on them, don't do that. Jacob did that, and so his brothers are like, ah, we hate this guy. He's always busting us. He's a tattletale. We also see here that Moses brings out a point that Jacob, part of his love for his son was to give him special gifts, gifts that would make him unique, gifts that would be uniquely valued by Joseph. What do you get as a gift for a guy like Joseph? 
Joseph had style. He liked to wear it. You get him something exceptional. Now for Joseph, it was a flashy, beautiful robe. You knew when Joseph walked into a room, he liked to express himself. And he liked to express himself through individual style. And in this moment of his life, he is riding so high. Dad loves me. He trusts me over my brothers. He gives me great stuff. Look at the next verse. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they what? Hated him even more. A distinctive gift that Joseph had that was very unique in this time was he had the ability to receive visions and dreams from God and then understand what they meant. So he had a series of dreams in which he saw his brothers bowing down before him as if they were servants. And he wanted to go tell them about that. He thought, hey guys, great dream. You guys are all going to worship me one day. And they hated him even more. So his brothers one day come up with this plan. They're like, look, we're, di- we're tired of our dad checking up on us. We can't be free. There's a place about 20 miles away. Let's start making this plan that we're going to move out there and get away from this. Joseph finds out about this, and so he knows his job is to go, you know, paddle on them. So he follows them out there. And it says in the text that the brothers see him from a long way off. Why did they see him from a long way off? Guys like Joseph are hard to miss. And they come up with a plan when they see him. Let's kill him. Now, Reuben says, I don't want to kill him. Now, it's not because Reuben is this kind older brother, but Reuben is the one going, look, if he dies, dad's going to come down on me. So how about we just throw him in this cistern and then leave him there, and we'll, we'll come up with some story. Secretly, he planned to come back later and help him out. But then Moses tells us something. While Reuben is gone, it just so happened, wink, wink, that a caravan was passing by on its way to Egypt. The brothers change the plan. They sell Joseph down into slavery, and they get rid of the tattler. Now, normally, when you are sold into slavery, that's the end of the story for you. But there's something that we see in Genesis 39, and it's a phrase that is repeated four times. The Lord was with Joseph. 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 God is around everyone, but he was with Joseph in a very unique way. And Joseph ends up getting out of this caravan and he's sold into the house of a rich man named Potiphar. Potiphar began to see something about this new slave. This guy makes things work. This guy makes things better. He brings something special to the table. And so Joseph began to rise up again in the house of Potiphar from slave to head of household. But he also catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife wants this guy. She's used to getting whatever she wants, and she wants him. She wants to sleep with him. He says no. He says no. At one point, she grabs him, and he's only able to get away from her by wriggling out of his coat and running away. Joseph's clothing seems to always get him in trouble. He's accused of assault, and he's thrown down into prison. And in an ironic twist of fate, do you know who the captain of the guard of the prison is? It's Potiphar himself. Things are not looking good. Now I want to pause here for a moment. This would be a natural opportunity for a guy who's wired like Joseph to have a pity party. Why does everyone else have it so easy? I share my gift with my brothers. They throw me down in a a cistern. I, I try to practice sexual integrity. I'm thrown down in prison. 
Why am I missing out on what everyone else has? People like Joseph can be susceptible to envy, to envy others who seem to have it better than they do. But Joseph doesn't take that path. He chooses a different path. He chooses faith. And the way he chooses faith is by being faithful. And Potiphar once again begins to take notice of this man. There's, there's a part of my heart that suspects that Potiphar might have wondered if, if he was really guilty of that after all. Anyways, I don't know. But he's watching this. He's watching this man. And he begins to rise up again within the prison. During this time, two men come to the prison from the court of Pharaoh, his baker and his butler. Somehow they had offended their boss and the penalty was prison. And there, Moses says that when they met Joseph, because he's kind of risen up the ranks in the prison, he began to shepherd them, to care for them. This is really interesting because even though Jacob had put Joseph in some authority over his brothers, he didn't really serve them, right? Going to someone and saying, I had a dream that you're going to worship me. That's not really serving someone. But the text tells us that he began to take care of the people under him. We're seeing him grow. People like Joseph have this great ability to sit with others and to listen to them without having to fix them. People like Joseph are great to share your problems with. And that's what happens here. The butler and the baker, they both had a problem. The problem was they had these crazy dreams and they didn't know what they meant. And so they sat with Joseph and Joseph listened to him and he didn't didn't have to fix them. And they said, well, you tell us what these mean. And Joseph told the butler, your dream means that God is going to restore you back to the house of Pharaoh. Will you put in a good word for me? The baker said, well, what about my dream? He goes, your dream means that you're going to be executed. So don't worry about the good word thing. Just uh, you're good. Both these dreams came true and two years passed by. The butler forgot his promise. But then it just so happened, wink, wink, that Pharaoh was waking up at night with these dreams and he didn't understand what they meant and he went to all his highly paid spiritual advisors and they went, we don't know what this means either. And the butler overheard this. He says, oh, wait a minute, I remember there's a man who can understand dreams. And Joseph is brought back up to the throne Joseph tells Pharaoh, your dreams mean this, that the entire region outside of, including us and around our country, are going to have seven years of amazing fertility, and then it's going to be followed by seven years of devastating famine. And Joseph saw this problem in in a very special way, and he said, I have a suggestion about how Egypt can ride this out. Pharaoh saw something special in this man, and he placed him up in a position. Basically, he's, he's kind of running the, the country. He's the agricultural commissioner with unlimited broad powers to prepare them for this famine. And seven years later, guess what happens? Here comes the famine. Egypt was ready. Joseph's unique gifts had positioned Egypt uniquely among all the other nations. While everyone else was starving, Egypt's storerooms were stocked. And Joseph's stock could not be higher And among those people starving, Jacob and the 11 other sons back in Canaan. In Genesis 42, Jacob barks at his son. He says, go to Egypt, take all the cash we can, go find this this miracle worker, beg before him, do whatever you have to do, buy some food so we can eat. All of you go except for Benjamin. I lost my favorite son. I'm not losing my second favorite son. I'm sure they enjoyed hearing that. The ten sons travel and they gain an audience with this agricultural commissioner who raised a nation, rescued a nation. They're standing there, hat in their hands, but in this unusual thing, they don't recognize Joseph. 
They thought this guy was dead or in slavery somewhere. The 17-year-old they had sold into slavery has now, 20 years later, become a man of power. He's probably wearing another beautiful robe, though, right? But in this moment, Joseph remembered his dream, the dream that started it all, the dream that set him apart, the dream that made him feel so different from all his brothers, the dream that made him feel so misunderstood. And finally, Joseph can deliver what all of us, come on, be honest, you fantasized about this. Payback. This stage is set for a Shakespearean tragedy of revenge. It could be so good. But instead, Joseph directs one of the most interesting dramas in all of Scripture. He immediately disguises his voice. He begins to play the part of a harsh government official. We know he's playing a part because even though he speaks so meanly to them, he has to keep leaving the room to go over here to cry because he's just so overwhelmed at this emotional reunion of seeing his brothers. And then he gets back into the role. This production he directs involves uh, accusing his brothers of being spies, of incarcerating them, of demanding that they go home and bring that youngest brother back with them to prove they're telling the truth. Now, when you first read this story, you think, gosh, this sounds kind of cruel, like he's just toying with them. No, no, no. Zoom out of history for a moment. Let's just get out of the family drama for a minute. Let's see what God is up to on a grand scale. In the plan of God, these brothers were the seed of Abraham. God was creating a nation, as you remember, a nation of people called Israel that would usher in the Messiah that would save the world. And so God has to know something. Can these boys be trusted? Can I found a nation on their backs Are these the same guys who would sell out their brother just because they didn't like him? Have they changed, or do I need to start all over again? Joseph here is directing a play, and it's this just very creative and intricate play designed to move his brothers to repentance to demonstrate to God these guys are changed. Now, something really interesting happens in Genesis 42. Moses says this. uh, So all this stuff is happening to them. They're getting accused of being spies, and they're getting incarcerated. This guy is so mean to them. What is going on? They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul. He begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you? Not to sin against the boy. Thanks, Reuben, for rubbing it. I told you guys not to do this. But you did not listen. And so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The brothers are beginning to crack. They are seeing connections between some of the strange ways they're being treated by this harsh official and what they did to their brother 20 years ago. And Reuben is calling it. Guys, this isn't this official being a jerk. This is God punishing us for our sin of murdering and selling off our brother. Joseph, by the way, overhears this conversation. He is so moved, he runs off to weep again. By the way, people like Joseph often struggle with being present. It's hard for them just to be in that moment. They get overwhelmed and they tend to withdraw. We see Joseph keep doing this throughout this story. 
So the brothers go back. They get Benjamin. They bring him back to Joseph. They fully expect to be thrown in captivity. Instead, they are greeted by a lavish banquet. Everything is set perfectly. The, the, the silverware, the glasses, the table, the food is so exquisite. It's very luxurious. Strangely, as they walk up here, they see nameplates, and they sit down, and they realize that they have been placed in order from youngest to oldest. Who would know that? Just another touch of the dramatic. And for some reason, they look down at Benjamin's plate, and Benjamin has five times the amount of food that any of them were given. Benjamin, who had taken Joseph's place as the favorite son, is now being favored. I can't prove this, but I think that maybe Joseph wanted to show Benjamin being different isn't all that bad. But on their way home, thinking everything is great, the brothers are stopped, and they are accused of stealing the divining cup of the official, the cup he used to divine the future. It's this actual cup. <laughs> they said, we, we loved you, we gave you food, we honored you, and this is how you repay us. You stole the divining cup, the cup that this government official uses to tell the future. Come back and face your punishment. So they come back. Now, you and I, we know the story. We know two things about this cup that these guys don't know. The first thing we know is this. Joseph don't need no cup. This is not the source of his power. The source of his power was where? God himself. His power came from God. This is a gift from God. This cup was just a prop in the play. The other thing we know about this cup is that they didn't steal it. It was placed in their bags, hidden there as a ruse by Joseph. So they drag these guys all before them, and they're all got their bags there. They say, put your bags down. Very simple. We'll open the bag. Whoever's bag has the cup will be killed. The men are confident. Oh, we didn't take it. They put down the bag. They go through each one. The cup was found in the sack of Benjamin. Joseph delivers this line. It's such a Joseph line. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Did you not think that I would know? And so I want you to lean in for a moment. This is the climax of the story. Joseph has arranged it so his brothers are in the exact same position they were in 20 years before. His elaborate plan was staged to force his brothers to once again get a second chance to make this choice. Will we abandon our brother? What they could do in this moment is they could say, yeah, I'm so sorry that Benjamin took that. I understand the penalty is his death. We'll just be see our way out, head back to Egypt, and we'll be, we'll be saved. Listen to what Judah steps forward. Judah actually steps forward and delivers the longest speech in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to go through all of it, but Judah says this. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Judah knows Benjamin didn't steal the cup. He's not saying that. He sees the hand of God in this, moving against them for their sin of selling Joseph years before. Here's his confession. We did not steal the cup, but what we did was worse. We are guilty. We have sinned before God. We will stay with our brother, and we will pay his price together. This is what Joseph wanted to hear. He could bear it no more. He removes his disguise. He reveals who he is. There's weeping. There's crying. There's forgiveness. There's probably one of those moments where one of the brothers is like, hey, you lost a lot of hair. All that kind of stuff that brothers do. 
this great reunion. Jacob says, hey, go back. Joseph says, go back and get Jacob. Get the whole family. Bring them here. We got four or five more years of famine. Let them ride it out here in safety. This is why God has me here. And God begins the next phase of building the nation of Israel that one day will produce Jesus Christ. This is Joseph. Now, what do we learn about Joseph? And what do we learn about ourselves that will help us sit with one another at the table? Well, I want to give you a clue as to something. You think, well, why did Joseph treat his brothers this way when he had this other opportunity? I'll tell you, a little clue is tucked away at the end of chapter 41. This is before the reunion, and Moses is updating us on a little bit of what's going on with Joseph. Moses tells us that Joseph actually had two sons while he was in Egypt. Genesis 41, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. With his first son, now names mean things, right, in the Bible. And, and, and with his first son, Joseph is saying this, God's allowed me to forget and to forgive all the trouble from my family. I'm letting that go. With the name of his second son, he's saying, God has made me fruitful. I don't need to envy other people. I have enough. My journey up and down and up and down and up and down is one that I have come to be grateful for. And, of course, we see his gratefulness in his famous words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If I wasn't sold into slavery, I would have no way to be in a position to rescue a nation and my family. Joseph accepted his specialness as a good thing used for God's glory. So how does Joseph down there, how does he sit at this table and how do we sit with him? I think that uh, Joseph would be what the Enneagram would describe as a four, the romantic, the individualist. Joseph is motivated by this desire to be different, to be true to himself. He looks at the world in terms of authentic expression, and what he values is this, when people are authentic, when they express themselves. We need people like Joseph because they bring a lot to the table. Think about this. Who else would have gone through that drama like Joseph did with his brothers? Now, now think about it for a minute. you got a guy like Peter. We knew from Peter that Peter is a person that loves to go to this thing because he's always wanting to avoid pain, right? Jesus, no, 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 you don't have to go to the cross. Uh, I don't even know who Jesus is. I, I don't know him. Peter is motivated by this desire to avoid pain. Peter would have not been great in this position. He, he would have wanted to just not go through any of that. Paul, Paul is motivated by what is right. Can you imagine if 10 brothers came before Paul? Paul would say, I have written a 40-page document listing all of your crimes and what you need to do to repent of them. And they're in six sections. I mean, he would have that. But Joseph, we get drama. And sometimes with people like Joseph, we get drama. And we get a production that changed a nation. People like Joseph bring the creativity of God to the table. Uh, throughout Scripture, we see a God, God expresses feelings to us. This is so amazing. We have a God who says, I'll share my feelings with you. Through songs, through poetry, through story, through beauty, through imagination. People like Joseph bring listening to the table. They are sensitive to others. They are the best people at just sitting with you without having to fix you. 
And when we sit down at the table with people like Joseph, we need to remember that they have unique struggles as well. As we saw, Joseph could have struggled with envy, the fear of missing out. Others have what I don't have. Others have it so easy. I mean, I tell this this guy his dream, and then he gets to get out. Many people like Joseph actually can identify growing up with a sense of loss, abandonment, or neglect. Does that sound like the experience of a 17-year-old whose family brothers said, we're going to sell you in slavery rather than live with you? Sometimes people like Joseph have interpreted this experience to mean that something was wrong with them, that they weren't wanted, that they weren't special enough. And so to compensate, you know what they do in life? They try to present themselves as unique. Hey, if people will recognize that I am special and unique and worthy, then I'll have a place in this world. Sometimes this might come off as bragging. I bet Joseph would have loved social media, right? You don't think he would have loved that? He'd be posting things all the time. Hey, do you see this new row I've got? Hey, look at my new position. Hey, here's a selfie of me with this guy in prison. This guy's going to die, but let's all just get celebrate this stuff. He, he would want to tell people about this. I know people that are, are like this, and they get on social media, and sometimes it's easy for me to judge them and go, oh, man, they're just being braggy. No, they're not. This is just a way for them to express who they are. Can you imagine what would have happened if his brothers, instead of resenting him when he showed up with that coat that day, what if they had said, wow, Joseph, we love that you wear coats that none of us would wear, but it looks good on you. You're awesome. When we sit across from people like this, we need to give them this gospel truth. You are seen and valued for who you are. The gospel for someone like Joseph is this. Because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to show off your robe. You don't have to share your dreams to get people's attention and to feel worthy. This is what Jesus' death, life, death, and resurrection says, that his love for them is enough. As we begin to close today, if you find, maybe in this story you think, you know, I can really identify a lot with Joseph. Maybe this verse would be one that you would want to memorize and grab hold of. It's this, Jesus saying, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's this thing you meditate on that says, you know, as I remain in Christ, he reminds me that nothing is missing. I'm complete in him. My joy isn't out there and having what that person has or what that person has. My joy is in the fact that I have him. His joy is in me, and I have enough. You can experience fullness of joy even through your ups and downs. And each week in this series, we're trying to attach a spiritual practice, like something that you could practice in a way. If you're a person like Joseph, a spiritual practice might be something that we saw Joseph do. It's the practice of gratefulness. For Joseph, he practiced gratefulness in a really strong sense. He he just kind of named his kids this way. So that every time he saw his kids and called their name, he'd be reminded And I would say this, when you're tempted to look at the cistern you've been thrown into, the caravan you've been sold to, the cell you've been imprisoned in, and feel like you are missing out, you can instead turn to God. And you can repeat, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. He has allowed me to forgive. He's allowed me to forget. And he's allowed me to find fruitfulness in whatever he's provided, in what I do have. And so a good prayer for someone like this would be this. God, in this situation, what is one thing I can be grateful 
for, and then I will be grateful for that. And that's how we welcome a person like Joseph to the table. And it's also a good place for all of us to end today with a prayer of gratefulness. In fact, I invite you to to bow your head for a minute and just pray with me. I encourage you to take a moment and just consider where you are in life right now. You might be enjoying the up, the season of being up. You might be feeling crushed by the down. This is not how it was supposed to be. But in this moment, would you pause and ask God, God, what can I find that you have provided that I can be grateful for today? God, when we've been thrown down, when we have had things happen to us that are hurtful, when people have wounded us, when life has robbed us, it is hard to look out of the darkness of a cistern or a prison cell and see your hand. We admit we can't always see what you're up to, but we do ask in this moment, no matter how small the grace Show us what we can be grateful for.